All right. So, you know, Tess and I were celebrating our anniversary last week, and one of the things we did was we, ah, oh, thank you guys, thank you. Really, this is a clap for Tess, uh, suffering through like that. That's right. Uh, and she is more handy than I am, but we decided to work on a project together, and we built a table. Some people think we bought that table and just took a picture of it. No, we, we built a table. Uh, but there was a moment while we were building the table where the instructions had uh, two different measurements, different angled cuts, and we couldn't figure it out. And so we looked at it, and we looked at it, we called two people, they didn't answer, so we were just like left, what, what do you do? And then they, we had an aha moment, and we figured out the puzzle, and we knew how to make the cuts and make the measurements. And it felt really good to figure out this problem on our own. And you know what that feels like when you like hit a puzzle and you're like, I don't know how to do this. And then a moment, there's this moment where you're like, that's, that's the answer. That's the solution. Well, today we're going to hit a, a moment in our passage where we have an aha moment. Where we're going to find an answer to a question that has been uh, woven into the whole of Mark's gospel. And finally, there's an answer today. Now, it's not a question. It's not a question we've been sitting with uh, for these many months in the Gospel of Mark. It's one that I have decided not to highlight. But now that the answer is in our passage, I feel like we need to go back and know what the question was that this passage is answering. And I think you'll see as we do a quick journey through the Gospel of Mark, starting with chapter 1, you'll see how prevalent that question is. So I want you to take a look. Take a look at this. This is the question that we need to answer. Why does Jesus not allow himself or others to openly declare that he is the Messiah? From chapter 1 onward, Jesus is constantly telling people, don't you say anything, don't you say anything, don't you say anything. Telling people, be quiet and don't tell anybody. And even himself, he will not declare himself, who he is, fully in, uh, in public. What's going on? So you see how prevalent this question is throughout the gospel. So before we ever get to our passage, I want to read seven more passages. Take a look. Chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, and then verse 33. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 25, be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And just a little later in chapter 1, we read this. Verses 42 through 44, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Again, here, just in chapter 1, twice, Jesus says, be quiet. Don't tell anyone. What in the world's going on? Let's go to chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And then chapter 5. 
verses 42 through 43. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone, to not let anyone know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is the young girl who was brought back from the dead. And again, don't tell anyone. Go to chapter 7, verses 35 and the first part of verse 36. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. And then in chapter 8, when Peter declares, you are the Messiah, Jesus doesn't pick that up and say, yes, I am, now go tell everyone. He actually tells Peter, don't tell anyone. Take a look. Mark 8, 29 and 30. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Next sentence. So Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. That's something. Woven throughout the gospel is this question. Why does Jesus not let himself or others declare who he is fully in public? Well, the answer is going to come in our passage today. And it's going to make all the difference, the context of that answer. So we're going to pick up. Chapter 14, we're going to pick up with verse 53. Jesus is now in his trial. He's been arrested He's already started in on a deep suffering, and now is trial. Verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statement did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death, and then they began to spit on him. They blindfolded him struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near to Peter said, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, did you see it? 
Did you see the moment Jesus accepted who he fully was? Did you notice when he finally grabbed his identity and declared it? Isn't it interesting where he did that? He didn't do it when he was at the height of his popularity. Now, you can imagine that when Jesus is performing the miracles, casting out demons, he's on a high. The crowds are surrounding him. He is popular. Fame is increasing. And every time that's happening, Mark records, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. So we would expect that if you want to get your identity out, you make sure to get it at your height. You talk about it when everyone's listening. That's the way we would do it. That's how you get your brand out there. But for Jesus, it is completely reversed. And this shouldn't surprise us because throughout the Gospel of Mark, he has been recording Jesus saying some really weird things, some backwards things, things that are upside down. You know, those things where he says the first will be last and the last will be first. That this kingdom is upside down. And so we would expect that the moment that Jesus would declare his identity in full would be when he's at his height, when the fame is at its greatest. But that's not what we find. We find that the one time Jesus finally accepts, declares who he fully is, is at the depth of his suffering. We might say it like this. Jesus bursts with the light of who he is in the middle of darkness. Now, when we understand who Jesus is, that makes perfect sense because he's always doing things backwards. Jesus reveals himself in his suffering. Remember just last week we saw, or two weeks ago, we saw a woman who anoints Jesus' feet, anoints his whole body because she's preparing him for burial. And as she's doing that, everyone else says, get away. That could have been, that perfume could have been sold to help the poor for a year. Jesus says she's actually the only one who understands what's going on. This unnamed woman understood that to be To be who he is, he had to die. And remember, all along the way, Jesus is telling them he's got to die. No one understands that. And here, here, in his most clear statement that he is the Messiah, it is in his suffering. It is at the pit of his darkness up to this point where he finally reveals who he is. And that's something. That's definitely backwards from the way we would work. But it tells us something profound about the kingdom of God. Now, not only does he say, I am the Messiah, he then goes on to quote this odd passage from Daniel 7. He talks about the Son of Man coming down. He talks about clouds being drawn up into those clouds. If we went back to Daniel 7, we would see that this is a moment where the Son of Man, a figure who stands in for Israel, who has been persecuted, is then vindicated and seated at the right hand of God, brought up to the throne. And it is declared righteous innocent and proven worthy of God. And Jesus there is grabbing that image and saying, not only am I the Messiah, but I will be vindicated by the God of Israel. That all all the suffering now in front of me will all be made right, and I will be the one sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, that is the moment When he takes Daniel 7, connects it with the Messiah, and declares he is the one that we see the fullest declaration of who he is. Nowhere else in the gospel is it this clear. And we will see it one more place. It will come from the mouth of someone else at the cross. We'll pick that up here in the next couple weeks. 
but in this moment, the fullest revelation. Now, one scholar will take this, connect the connection of Daniel 7 with the declaration of who he is, and he'll make this point that finally everything's out in the open. Take a look. This is what one scholar says. like the way he says it. The answer Jesus gives to the high priest says, yes, I am the Messiah. You will see me vindicated, and my vindication will mean that I share the very throne of Israel's God. At last, the masks are off. The secrets are out. The cryptic sayings and parables are left behind. The Son of Man stands before the official ruler of Israel, declaring that God will prove him in the right and the court in the wrong. And all of that happens in darkness, in his suffering. So if we had to summarize... Everything that's going on in this passage, in this big point about this answer to a question that has been plaguing us throughout the gospel, I'd say it this way. Jesus reveals himself most fully in his suffering and darkness. Now that's enough Bible study, to the, like right here. Because at this point, there's enough application to take us for the rest of the morning. So I want to move right there. Where would we find application for our lives in this passage with that truth, taking the whole gospel into account? I think it's right here. Suffering is often the place where God shows himself most fully to us. I really wish there was another way. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't it be good if it was in our highs that God revealed himself most fully to us? But it is often in our suffering. Now, that is both a biblical truth that you could go grab, even if you didn't live in real life. You could go grab that out of the Bible. But it just so happens that I bet you, in your real life, you have experienced that truth also. That it's often in the suffering where we will see and experience God most fully. Now, I want to just make sure that we understand how big this topic is. It's a really big topic. So we're not going to try to exhaust all there is to say about suffering. But I do want to say this. The Bible never tells us why we suffer the specific things we suffer. But it does say that in the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. And in our weakness, his power is made perfect. That we know. I don't, I don't have a good answer. I mean, I would love to get up here and give a really good answer about why we suffer the specific things we suffer. I don't know. I don't know. And the Bible does, isn't interested in giving us the exact answer. I mean, the book of Job is one big declaration that you're not going to figure this thing out. But Jesus says, I am with you. I'm so much with you, I will come and also suffer. I will not be immune to the thing you also experience, and I'll beat it. And one day I'm going to make it all right, and we're going to have a new creation where there will be no more tears, no more death. But the Bible never sets out to give us an explanation of the why, and we desperately want it. It's just not there. But the Bible does say, I am with you. Now, what's interesting is that if we just take a a small child into account, a child gets this. You know, if when my four-year-old girl is scared or gets hurt, you know the question she's rarely ever asking? Why? Ava rarely asks why. But what she does want is a parent with her and to suffer through all the crying that will happen in whatever problem is in front of us. That's what the child wants. They're not looking for a why, they want a who. That's what a a little child wants. It doesn't come till later that we typically want all that why stuff. 
Now, I'm not saying that the why is not important. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't give us a clear answer on our specific sufferings. But the Bible always gives us an answer for the who. Now, I want to just take this, get this on the ground practically. Now, it's going to look like it's real theological and man, but you're picking, a, you know, you're picking a Bible passage, so this doesn't count. But I want you to imagine as you read this passage of a real guy who gets really hungry and has real pain in his body, and he's struggling with God on why he's experiencing what he's experiencing. He shares it in this letter, the Apostle Paul writing to his second letter to the Corinthians. He wrote this, imagine this being something real, in real life. He writes 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take the, the thorn in the flesh away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power will rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's just, that's real life for Paul. I don't understand how he moved in this in daily life. I don't know what it's like to delight in, weak, in weakness. I don't get that. But I know there's something about the kingdom of God that would teach us to move in humility and to take our sufferings and go to God with gratitude. And somehow he's there fully with us. I don't know if Paul had a particular passage of Scripture from the Old Testament in mind when he's thinking and taking what God tells him and working it into the letter, but I tend to think that Paul here is learning what it means to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and then also declare, He is with me. I wonder if he was grabbing that famous passage, Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Not because I know why I'm suffering, but because I know who is with me. This is a lesson we must learn if we are to be students of Jesus. And so if we just took this application and wrapped it maybe in a summary, this is what I'd say. God's presence in our sufferings doesn't take away the pain and the confusion, but it does, does give us strength in ways that help right where we are. I want to be very clear. I don't think because we have Jesus, that takes away pain. I don't think because we have Jesus, it takes away confusion. I think part of following Jesus is learning to sit with confusion and anger and pain and yet have peace. And I don't know how all that works, but I know it will work where you are. Because God has a way of meeting us right where we are. He can't meet you where you're not. He has to meet you where you are. And so he'll be there. And he'll help you. Now, helping us is often, is often a lot slower than we like to, uh, to admit. This is the God who takes nine months to create a baby in a mother's womb. This is a God who takes months to put fruit on a tree. This is not a God who created the microwave. We did that. God didn't do that. We did. We were probably closer to the way God works when we created the crock pot, not the microwave. You get this. And so when we face a deep suffering, either the death of a loved one, a senseless act of violence, 
maybe an accident that took someone close and dear, or maybe some type of terminal diagnosis or illness, whatever that might be, or it is a chronic illness, God typically doesn't move in and say, all right, one prayer, I'm removing the pain. It usually happens over many months where God brings that kind of peace, maybe years, but God is there. If you want to know how God works, look at trees. Look at people. Look at how we learn to read and write. It's process. So take your time. God is with you. You don't have fear and evil. So let's then now take this to a next step. So if it's true that God is often revealing himself most fully in the darkness, not on the mountain, the mountaintop, the moment of great joy, then how do we get that on, down on the ground to something we might do like this week? This is, gonna, this is my stab at it. When suffering, pray, you are with me, and do the next right thing. Now, I don't mean that as a metaphor. This isn't figurative. Literally, let your prayer be those few words. You are with me. So, like, when you got the migraine, and you're going into your deep spiral of darkness, literally, you're you're losing your vision, your head's hurting, just say, you are with me. And then your next right thing is probably to go to bed. Close the windows, lock out sound, and go to sleep. And then your spouse needs to help you do that. All right? If that applies. Obviously, it's all how it applies to your life. Maybe you are dealing with depression. I don't know. That, that, you just don't get over that real quick. But I do know that we can pray even in those low moments, you are with me. It does, it's not a magic formula. It's not going to change the way you feel in an instance, but you just keep praying, you are with me. You put that in front of your mind. You are with me. You are with me. And then the next right thing Maybe getting out of bed. And I mean it like when. That's for the when. I got out of bed. And then maybe the next thing you need to do is get a shower for the when. And if what you did on that day was you got up and you got a shower for the win. Sometimes we think we have to be champions to fight through our suffering. When God is saying, walk with me slowly and I'm with you. So let's not try to be overachievers. When suffering, pray you are with me and then just do the next right thing. Make it very practical. Make it very practical. And then over many days and many weeks and many months, maybe many years, you will see that you have turned into Jesus more than when you started. Because God has a way of revealing himself in the darkness, unlike the light. It's exactly what happened in this passage Jesus revealed who he was more fully than in any other point when he was having a fist put in his mouth. That should tell us something. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it changes us slowly and over time. My simple prayer is that you would help us to know you are with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Would you show yourself to us and would you infuse us with patience? Would you show us what it is like to be strong even when we are weak? We'll have to lean in on your grace on that. Meet meet us right where we are. We pray that in the powerful name of Jesus, who was vindicated and one day will establish the new creation. And together we say, amen.